Jonathan. My name's Jonathan Frakes. How are you? The only reason I'm doing this is because Will Wheaton said you guys were cool. He said, I've known him from the beginning. You should do this. My mom would always say, you need to marry an Iranian. Yeah. And and I would tell her, I said, first of all, I said, I don't want to get married. And I said, secondly, if I do get married, I don't know what I'm going to marry. And she would say, no, you need to marry an Iranian. And the reasons were it's easier to have someone from the same culture. And she would use like silly examples. But she'd say, you know, maybe if I'm, we're at a party and we want to speak Persian, and I want to tell a joke in Persian. If she doesn't speak Persian, she's not going to get the jokes. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, mom, I'll, get, I'll marry an Iranian just for that. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. This is the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the GBB Podcast and Twitter at the GBB Podcast. And anywhere you can find podcasts to download, that's where we are. Apps, uh, carrier pigeons, I don't know how you get it. But that's what we do. (laughs) That's how we roll. We have some something to tell you right off the top of this episode, and I want to lead in because I know sometimes, you, while you have good intentions to stick around to the end, you might not necessarily do it, but we are taking a little bit of a break this summer because <laughs> Jamie has to go traveling for a month or so. so Sorry, guys. So, so what's going on, Jamie? Where are you headed off to? I, I mean, I know, but they don't know. So. We... Uh, <laughs> You know, so yeah, I we're heading to China for the summer. Uh, we will be there for six weeks, which is not a short period of time. So um, we figured rather than try to line up six episodes worth of material and get get them all edited and get the, all the posts written for Geek Dad, get that all done in advance, we decided to just take the lazy route and say, you know what? We're going to take the summer off. We're taking the summer. (laughs) We've never done this. So we are, what, in our third year now, and we have been going every week, sometimes twice a week, um, through holidays, through summer, through winter, all year. We've never missed a week, and um, we're going to be taking all of August and at least half of July, if not all of July. We'll see how things go. Um, We're going to be on hiatus. Um, I think we've earned it. What do you think, Justin? I, I think it? I think so, and I think summer is a good time to do it too because you know people are kind of yeah. they're just hanging out and they're not necessarily listening to podcasts. And I think it's a good time to do it, and then we'll launch back up in the fall because yeah. the fall is always at least for people with kids. That's like the start of my year is the fall, yeah, versus and, January. <laughs> and I'm sure there's a lot of people who, even though you might want to be regular listeners, we have been cranking out the 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 content. So I mean, it's like I said, we we have we were going twice a week there recently. Right. So you might have fallen behind, and this will give you a chance to catch up. So when we come back in in September, um, you know, you'll you guys will be caught up. There's not going to be a backlog, and we'll be able to just start again fresh. I think we're, we're trying be- for at least two more weeks, and then we're gonna we're gonna see. Is that what it is? Yeah, at least. Gonna- at least two more. We're going to see um, where we go and, you know, what 
you know, because if something amazing, an amazing opportunity for a guest, you know, just kind of hits us out of the blue, we're not going to say no because of that. So um, (laughs) we're not actually leaving until toward the end of July. So we've got some time. Um, But uh, just fair warning that we will not be sending new episodes your way after mid-July until September. Yeah, I mean, it's not like if we hear a ring, ring. Uh, John Lasseter wants to talk to you guys. You want to do it? We're going to be... Now we're on break. sorry. Can't do it. We're on break. (laughs) We're not going to talk to him. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think we're going to pass up anything like that. So fear not. If we get a big opportunity, we're not passing up on it. (laughs) No. We will be here for the next few weeks. But uh, yeah, fair warning. Going on break for the summer. All right, now that the sad news is out of the way, Jamie, you were on a panel this weekend at AwesomeCon in DC. How was that? It was amazing. Um, I, I, you know, I've been trying not to use the word awesome to describe it all the time because it was AwesomeCon, and it's it's right. funny. I was talking to one of the other panelists. It's it you get to be a little bit self conscious when you realize how many times you use the word awesome to describe mm-hmm. something. Um, but uh, AwesomeCon is the DC Comic Con. Um, it's about five years old at this point. Uh, it's amazing. I've been there since day one of their first year. Uh, and it just, it's been incredible to watch the show grow. Uh, it's been growing literally by leaps and bounds. Well, not literally leaps and bounds, but you know what I mean. Uh, it's been doubling in size almost every year, um, year over year. So it's, um, it's an incredible show. It's, it was huge this year. The Saturday this year of the show was the most, it sold out. Uh, and it was, you could tell by walking, it was just incredibly crowded. It was the most crowded I've ever seen the show. Sunday was a lot, um, a lot looser. It was a lot fewer people, which was great. But, uh, part of the reason I think that it was so crowded this year is because David Tennant was there. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it was, and he was just one of many, many people like, so Stan Lee was there, David Tennant, John Barrowman, Will Wheaton, uh, just a ton, a ton of really famous, um, Chris Hadfield was there. He did star talk live on Friday night. So yeah, it was, uh, the star power that they are bringing out for this show is really impressive. Uh, Sunday was father's day and awesome con had approached geek dad to do uh, sort of a joint collaboration sponsorship kind of thing. So we did, um, they had been promoting it as father's day at awesome con with geek dad. Uh, and it was great. So we, we had a panel on Sunday and we had a huge father's day giveaway. So the room was packed. Uh, they could have put us in a bigger room and we still probably would have filled it. It was standing room only, which was amazing. And wow. uh, there were four of us. There's four uh, guys who write for Geek Dad that are all somewhat local to the D.C. area. So there were four of us on the panel. Um, and we just basically, you know, we talked. It was a 45-minute panel, and we just talked about, uh, you know, sharing geeky stuff with your kids and what you share, what you've gotten from your kids in return. And we had a lot of really great uh, interaction with the audience. It was you know, like a two-way conversation, just just mm-hmm. a ton of fun. And I have never been a panelist before. So, um, I mean, I guess this podcast is kind of like a panel. It's kind of like right. we're moderating a panel every week. Um, but I've never done the live uh, in front of an audience kind of thing. So I wasn't really sure what to expect, but uh, it went really, really well. And we were really pleased with how it went. So hopefully we'll be doing it again next year. I'm not sure if it's going to be Father's Day weekend again next year, but if you're in D.C. uh, when AwesomeCon is happening or if you live in the area, definitely go check out the show. And if we have a panel, please swing by and say hello. Um, We'd love to see you. And hopefully we'll be doing more of this kind of thing. 
So my question is, when you were up on the up on the panel, how many people were like, "That's Jamie from the Great Big Beautiful Podcast." Oh, oh yeah, my word. so gotta get we, a picture with him. We all introduced ourselves, and I said, yeah, I mentioned the podcast, and I could hear like a murmur among the crowd, like, "Oh, oh my god, it's my favorite podcast! I love that show." <laughs> No, you didn't. <laughs> I only signed like five or six autographs afterwards. Yeah. You know. <laughs> That's awesome. No, it sounded like a lot of fun. I got to watch the live stream. Uh, Jamie's wife did a live stream on her Facebook, and that was pretty cool. I got to watch that. But yeah, I should say, if you guys are interested in watching, uh, Geek Dad, the Facebook page did share that. So if you go to the okay. Geek Dad Facebook page, um, you should be able to find the live stream and you'll be able to watch us. Apologies. She filmed it in portrait. So it's, you know, the vertical video. <laughs> I'm, I've been trying to get her to change that. So uh, aside from that, it's pretty good. You can you can see the whole thing there. All right. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> okay. So this week we have a great guest on the show. Jamie, why don't you introduce him and then we will cut right to the interview. We talked to Maz Jabrani this week, uh, which was just a great thrill. So if you don't know uh, who he is, he is a comedian who sort of came to prominence, I guess. I mean, he sort of, he became a household name, at least in the States, among, you know, mainstream audiences because of the uh, Axis of Evil comedy tour. Uh, And if you remember back during the George W. Bush years when he labeled um oh gosh what was it iran north korea and syria i believe he named them the axis of evil um and sort of in response to that maz and a few other comedians renamed we talk a bit a bit about this in the interview but um they formed what they called the axis of evil comedy tour and it was sort of the intent was to popularize and bring forward these voices of comedians and entertainers from these countries that have been labeled as evil or have been labeled as terrorist supporting countries. Um, and so uh, Maz is Iranian American. And so he has, you know, his comedy is, um, it, it's always been kind of political, but it's always, the heart of his comedy has always been about the need for cultural understanding and, and how misunderstandings really get in the way of, of us living, you know, peacefully together. Um, and, but obviously he's a comedian, so it's all done through that lens and through that focus. Um, I will say this interview, though it's funny and, you know, it's, he's a comedian, so it's, it's a really entertaining interview. We, we, mm-hmm. we, we realized at the end that like, it was actually a very serious interview. Like it wasn't mm-hmm. just like, Hey, funny man, tell me some jokes. Um, but you <laughs> <Dance> know, <for. laughs> we, we, he is, he just did a commencement speech at Berkeley, um, and that speech was very political. So we talked about that and we talked about, you know, the, the, I guess the serious side of, of comedy and why comedy is necessary, especially now in the Trump era and, and you know, why Americans especially need to travel more and how we can understand people and relate to them and, and how comedy and, and entertainment sort of factor into all of that. All right, so now we're going to go play that for you right now. Hope you enjoy it. Maz, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. This is a, it's a real pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, I, I wanted to start. It was I just noticed that you had just given the uh, the commencement address at Berkeley. I was wondering how that went. I watched it, so I'm just wondering how it went from your perspective. 
Uh, well, it was, it was pretty amazing. I, uh, I I graduated from Berkeley in 1993, and then I was asked uh, earlier this spring, before a lot of the um, uh, issues happened with before Milo Yiannopoulos or the Ann Coulter thing had happened, they asked me to give the commencement speech, and right away I said yes, and then right after, like the next day, I started freaking out <laughs> because I realized I got to write a speech. I'm a comedian. I I, I write jokes right. and. Um, and uh, it, it, as we got closer, the pressure got even more because then the Milo thing happened, then the Ann Coulter thing happened. And then as uh, in doing my research, I found out that I was giving the main speech. And I originally thought it was going to be in the Greek theater, which seats 5,000 people. It, it was actually yeah. in Memorial Stadium in front of 45,000 people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, was, that your, yeah. that, was that your biggest crowd? Absolutely, man. I've yeah. never performed in front of forty-five thousand people, and and I sure as hell have never had to um, bring in a serious message in between right. my comedy. Yeah, yeah. So that was kind of the challenge, but I was happy with the results. And and there was I had a few friends that I ran it by, and they gave me some good feedback and some notes. But uh, I think the good thing was that I really I really put in the time, and um, I started writing it. I started taking writing notes. Right, right away. So it was like a few months of writing down little notes. And then I started to organize those thoughts maybe maybe three weeks or so before. And it really helped because I was able to um, craft it to where I wanted it to be. And then even like the la I think the last two days, like two or three days before, I realized that I, I originally had it ending in a way that was going to end on a serious note, right? And I realized I can't do that. I got to, I got to end, end on some jokes. So I brought the jokes that were that were towards the end, but not at the end. Yeah. I moved those to the very end and made sure I ended on a, on, on laughs, and and it worked. Yeah, well, did uh, it's got to be kind of a tough crowd though, right? Because I mean, I mean, the students are probably with you, but I bet you there's forty thousand parents and grandparents who are like looking for that 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 serious you know you are the future kind of message yeah listen i mean it's forty five thousand people so you're not going to please everybody right <laughs> and uh and and I, I i watched a bunch of them leading up to this and, and my favorite one is conan o'brien at dartmouth and you see he really does a great job of doing i would say something like 15 to 20 minutes of just funny stuff about dartmouth about students just he just really is funny and then he spends maybe the last five minutes giving them a sincere message. Yeah. And I think that's why they pick comedians. They want you to be funny. So the difference being that I'm sure the grandparents and the parents all knew who Conan was as well. Or, mm -hmm. for example, Will Ferrell did USC this year. Everybody knows who Will Ferrell is. I'm up there and I'm sure there's out of 45,000, there's probably a lot of people who are going, who is this guy? They don't even know who I am. Yeah, yeah. So I had to establish right off the bat that I'm a comedian. And then, and then, uh, if people watch it, they'll see the first, the first few minutes is me trying to figure out why I was chosen, uh, <laughs> and I think that helps. I think that helps people see that I've got a sense of humor about myself. Yeah. Um, and then, and then the one part that I started again to have doubts about was, um, I, I knew as an immigrant, I was born in Iran and I've grown up in America, but I, I knew that one of the main reasons I was chosen was because I'm an immigrant. And I knew that once I got into that, I would have to do some stuff about Trump. Um, and then I read an article that I actually I was in. I was part of the article, but someone had taken a survey of all the commencement speakers or a bunch of commencement speakers to see if they will be talking about Trump. 
And even the ones that were political experts had said, no, I don't think I'll be talking about Trump. And I thought to myself, <laughs> oh, no, I'm not supposed to talk about Trump because I'm going to alienate the yeah. parents and grandparents. But I decided to stick with it. And, and I think that worked as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, much of your speech, um, aside from the jokes, but even even many of the jokes, you know, it was about the importance of inclusivity and free speech. And um, like you said, since you were speaking at Berkeley, you did talk about how important it is to fight for free speech and the free speech of everyone, including people that you might not agree with. And you mentioned Ann Coulter and Milo Yiannopoulos. Um, I, I feel like it generally, like in our in our society, like we're that's something that that sort of gotten forgotten and maybe not maybe forgotten or ignored uh you know this this political climate where where both sides have just barricaded themselves behind these walls of resistance and they just they refuse to listen to the anybody who differs with them politically or or culturally and that's 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 it's becoming more prevalent on both sides and i'm wondering when you went into this was that something that you knew like this is this is something that we need to talk about because if this is going to change, it's going to be these young people who are going to be the ones to start listening, and they have to be the, the motivators for that. Well, I, I, I first of all, I, I reminded myself that I'm not a politician, so yeah. I had a couple other uh, words in there that were a little harsher about Trump, but I said, <laughs> you know what, this is not the place for me to do this. If it were my stand-up show, I can certainly say whatever I want, but right. since I've been asked to come and give the speech, I will still do some jokes about him, I will still make some statements about him, um, but I won't go all out in condemning him on that stage, um, again, because it's their event. It's about them. It's not about me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But with that said, I think that uh, you're right. I mean, I think that, 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 every, that, that there's so many um, diverse outlets that people get their news from. I'll give you a great example. One of my friends is a Republican, and I'm Democrat, and and when the but but he's an old friend of mine, so he knows my family, he knows me, he knows other Iranians. We I grew up in Northern California, and there wasn't that many Iranians. But my friend, um, who is just American, um, he knew a handful of us, and we were all good friends. And when the travel ban happened, mm-hmm. um, I was talking to him, and I jokingly brought up, I said, "Hey, man, your boy is stopping my people from coming into the country." And he goes, hey, he goes, can I ask you a question? He goes, isn't it just like a handful of people that are being inconvenienced at airports? And I said, oh, no. I said, And I realized that he had been watching either Fox or Breitbart or wherever it was. Right. And that's the, that's the storyline he'd gotten. And I told him, I said, listen, as an Iranian-American, I'm actually having people email me their real stories. So I started sending him some of those stories and I started to – share anytime I saw a profile on, on somebody who'd been affected by this travel ban. And after like two or three of them that I sent to him, I said, hey, I'm sorry if I'm bombarding you with these. I just wanted you to see them. And he goes, oh, no, please keep them coming. I really am, you know, I'm, I'm interested in seeing this. And so it's interesting that people watching another network will see the world very differently. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you have to open your eyes. I mean, I, I from time to time will switch over to Fox and I would I wish I could say it's because I want to have an open mind, but it's more because I want to see how how they're angling yeah. this news piece. <laughs> yeah. And it's uh, it's pretty amazing, amazing how it's being done. And, and and you can have a conversation with people that you love and they will quote you some of these things. Um, you know, for example, is Donald Trump being 
investigated uh, for Russia because of uh, serious evidence, or is this a witch hunt? So depending on what network you're watching, yeah, you're gonna see a different take. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's out there. I don't know. I don't know what the future will hold. I, I don't know if it's these young people or who. At what point? I mean, I mean, there used to be a. We used to have a, a, at least we could agree on what the facts were. We can't even agree on that anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, spinning off of, of the speech that you gave, I mean, because you, you were, you had, a, you had a really good message in there. You were very funny, um, but you were also very political. Um, and, I, and I think, I think today, um, you know, we're, like we're talking about with Trump and, and with, with the current climate, I think a lot of people feel more marginalized than ever, whether whether they're part of a historically marginalized group um, or not. People feel internally that they're being marginalized. They're not being listened to. They feel lost. They feel misunderstood. Um, just from your perspective, as somebody who has traveled around the world, who has seen um, all kinds of different people, more more places and people than many Americans ever get to see. Where do we go from here? Like it, it's easy for people to just sit back and or or spout platitudes and say like resist, you know. But how do we move forward? How do we how do we come back together? Um, I think that it's. I personally, I mean, I ended on this note. I said I was I was actually optimistic about the future because I feel that no matter what we do, we are becoming more progressive and we are becoming more mixed. I've, I mean, I don't know the statistics of it, but if you look at whatever, 50, 60 years ago, a black man marrying a white woman was a big issue. Right. Um, now I have, I'm married to an Indian woman, so our kids are mixed. My neighbor's kids are, my neighbor, the husband's black, the wife is white. And, and so their, their kids are mixed and our kids are best friends and they don't, I don't think race is an issue to them. Um, the progress we made, I think, under Obama, whether it was the gay marriage or LGBTQ rights or um, even even climate-wise, there's a lot of stuff that I think eventually it becomes undeniable. Like I was using China as an example. Or I was using Saudi Arabia as an example in that those countries, even Iran, they can try to keep their people down but because of the internet, because of the amount of information that's out there, I feel that people are seeing how the rest of the world lives and they're saying, well, we want those freedoms. Yeah. So it's a lot harder to keep your people down. And I feel that, yes, there's this whole – because information was supposed to help. Information was supposed to make it so that we all go, I know my rights. I know the facts. I know the laws. I know what I'm missing out on. So therefore, I will help lead a protest in China to get more human rights in China. Um, however, as we've seen again under this current administration, uh, information can also be spun and used in a different way and called fake news. Mm -hmm. And so people are taking what I might see and going, for example, I might, I might see the, the gay rights as a good thing. People are taking that and somewhere someone is spreading the word and the story that if gay marriage uh, it, it continues, then all of our children will be gay and gay men will be um, right. whatever, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, so so I, I feel like I feel hopeful for the future. And but I do know that there's always a backlash. I think that's what we're seeing right now. There's this backlash right now against that progress. And there's people there's angry white people 
who probably the the economy has left behind. Yeah. And so they need to blame somebody and who better to blame than black people or, or Muslims mm-hmm. or immigrants or gay people. So yeah. there's going to be that backlash throughout. But I just feel like no matter what those people even try to do, that technology and uh, um, information is just going to make it such that that they won't be able to stop the movement no matter what they try to do. Yeah. I, just when you were talking about the media and how you go to Fox News to see the different side, it makes me wonder, is there any way for humans to actually be like in the center? Like We're all humans. We're not perfect. Is there a way for us to hide our bias and not report from that? I know you're. <laughs> this might not be up your alley, but... I don't know. What are your thoughts on? I don't that? know. I think I think I've heard people say that. I've heard some, some people. I've heard say I don't want to be political. I'm not political. I've heard some people say right. I'm just you know I'm just I'm an independent. I, I make up my decisions as I go. But then you go right. okay. So then you go. So then where do you stand on abortion? Where do you stand on have, yeah. gun rights? Where do you stand on climate change? Where do you stand on gay rights? Where do you stand on immigrant rights? And I think there's almost like a litmus test that you could take and go, okay, given the fact. Mm-hmm. That you seem to, you know, be opposed to all of these things, that makes you someone on the right. That just makes you someone who's conservative because you don't right. want to change. You don't. You 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 are against abortion. You're you know all this stuff. So, I think as much as some people say I want to be in the center and I just want to make right. decisions based on the the individual candidate, it's very hard for that to happen, especially in this day and age. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine that happening. I mean, I just get worked up because I've, every time I read the paper, there seems to be another thing being pushed. Yeah. Um, you know, money away from schools, money towards more uh, uh, dirtier energy, money uh, against, uh, you know, the arts, money against, uh, you know, just a lot of stuff. Like there's there's cuts coming. There's there's policies that are, that are being pushed, these agendas that are being pushed. And you can look back at it and, and realize that, that it seems to kind of like ping pong back and forth when you have a Republican mm-hmm. uh, um, administration, they go one way. For example, I was just reading recently that uh, America gives foreign aid, but they're they're saying now any NGOs that give that that promote um, uh, any any NGOs that that promote uh, a- abortion will not get the funding from the U.S. foreign aid. And that supposedly every time, uh, or at least in the recent past, when a Republican administration has come in, they have made that part of the one of the contingencies for getting that foreign aid. And then whenever the Democrat has come in, he's rescinded that and said, we'll still give you foreign aid, even if you're promoting um, mm-hmm. abortion. So you see this kind of back and forth. So you could say, I want to be in the middle, but how do you feel when you hear this? Do you get upset or do you not get upset? I get upset. I get upset that we're telling the rest of the world that we're we're overpopulated, that we should be teaching the rest of the world, um, um, you know, uh, contraception and finding ways to, to, to have more responsible childbirth. And with that comes, I believe, um, an advocacy for abortion when necessary um, so why not teach certain cultures that, hey, if you are, even if you're pregnant, it's not the end, you can, if you do it at the right time, it's okay, you should do that. Like, I'd rather have that than have some poor uh, woman, teenage girl who gets raped in Africa have a baby because she feels that she shouldn't get an abortion. 
Um, so where do you stand on that? I mean, that's that, yeah. that, that'll that define right. whether you're center or right. I mean, I don't think yeah. be, it's hard to stay in the center. No, you're right. I agree. <laughs> you, um, you studied political science when you were at Cal. Uh, obviously, it, it, you're using a lot of what you learned probably in your comedy today. You also studied Italian, though, so I'm wondering how your Italian is today. You know, my Italian, when I get a little drunk, it gets pretty good. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think when you're drunk, you have no inhibition, so you just go for it. Um, one of the things that's been a little bit of a, um, it's been a, a little bit of a, a, um, like good and bad in that um, I've learned kind of broken Spanish because I live in LA uh-huh. and we had a nanny, a Guatemalan nanny. So I've learned broken Spanish, but then it gets in the way of my Italian. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, my Italian is okay. I think if I went to Italy and spent maybe three months just living there, I could, I, I would, I could get back to where I was. I was really good. I, I spent a full year there. I had an Italian girlfriend. I was, when you did the study abroad, it was when I was a Cal. I went, I studied abroad in, um, in Padua, which is in the North, right near, um, uh, Venice. And, uh, we were studying in the school and I, I advise everybody. I tell every kid that's in college, I say, take a year, find a country and go study abroad. I felt Mm -hmm. like I grew so much, but I was, I was writing thesis papers in Italian and, and I was fluent in Italian. It was just a beautiful experience and, and one of the best years of my life. I absolutely agree. I, I mean, I tell the same thing. First of all, number one is travel. Travel is absolutely as much as you can. But if you, when you're a student or right after college or right before college, if you have the opportunity, man, just go live somewhere. I lived in China for three years. And wow. man, it was it, like you were saying, like you change so much and you don't like it's in ways that you don't even anticipate, you know, but it's languages do not come easy to me, but I can't imagine trying to read or write a language like Chinese without living there. So, um, you have to, I, you have to, I took, listen, I took three years of high school French and I didn't learn anything. I learned very little. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you have to. And I think what you did was great to go live there for three years because it also makes you appreciate America. This whole thing we're talking about free speech. I think when you go to some of these countries where you go, Oh wow, they really don't have free speech. The next time you decide to go protest someone whom you really don't like, but, you know, I mean, it's okay to protest them, but the next time you decide to stop them physically from speaking, you go, wait a minute, I'm acting like the Chinese government right now. Like, what am I doing? I should let these people speak and just, you know, move on. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, something that comes up again and again in in your, like your your Berkeley speech, your TED Talks, your your stand-up routine, is that, is that importance of of traveling and getting out there and seeing what the world is like and and finding out that these people that you might be afraid of, they really are not that scary. They're not that much different than you, actually. Um, And they don't care about you. They're not not thinking about you as much as you're thinking about them. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I mean, how much... How much of this willful ignorance, how much of this, this where we are right now, how much of that would just go away if, if Americans traveled more? I think it would help a lot. I think a lot of people's eyes are open. I even saw you know, Anthony Bourdain, who's well-traveled, obviously, um, when he did an episode in Iran. I heard him say, he goes, yeah, when I, t- when I went to Iran, I was a little tentative. I didn't know what to expect. And he said, they ended up being the most hospitable people I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, in the world and he's coming from someone who's saying 
the news I would see in the West had me scared about Iran, but they ended up being super hospitable. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, some people also go, well, you're an apologist for Iran or for whatever Muslims or this and that. But I'm saying, I'm not saying that there's not bad things. The government of Iran could arrest you and put you in jail, but yeah. most likely they'll do that if you are an Iranian who lives in the West and does stuff or, 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 do, or does something political in Iran. Like, I personally don't think I could go back to Iran because I've done jokes about the leadership, but I feel that any American, I've heard of a lot of Americans that have gone there and they've seen the country and it's beautiful and they were welcomed. Um, so I think that we need to get past our fears. Uh, I've been to places like Beirut and I've been to you know Saudi Arabia and I even went, I mean, I went to, um, recently with all the talk about Mexico being dangerous, I went to a conference in, in Puebla, Mexico mm -hmm. and, uh, and leading up to it because of all the news I was seeing in America, I, I really hesitated. But when I went down there, it was fine. I went. I went to the conference. Nobody bothered me. It was great. So I think that we we see these things in the news and we get scared of some countries. Not to say we should go to countries where there's a war going on, but it's a big world. There's people living their lives. And yeah, I think if more Americans could travel, it would be great. I think part of it is just geographically we're, we're somewhat isolated. So it's either Mexico South or Canada North. Um, but, you know, when you're living in Europe, for example, every hundred miles in either direction you end up or a few hundred miles in either direction, you end up in a different country. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So just by nature, they're, they're close. They, they, they travel more. Um, also, I know some people say, well, it costs to travel and not everybody can afford it. But I really wish that it, would, it was more a part of our culture. Yeah. I wish that uh, even, even if in high school they could encourage people to go. And, and really go live there. Like you said, I remember when we went to Italy, um, when we first arrived, we were kind of the ugly American walking around in shorts, <laughs> getting drunk, screaming. Uh, and, and it took a little while. I mean, I, I remember I almost, I almost went for just one semester and somebody told me, they said, no, you should go for the full year because a semester in is when you just start to really yeah. blend in with the culture. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I remember by the end of that year, walking around in Venice and seeing other Americans who'd just arrived. And I was like, oh, these Americans are so annoying. Um, <laughs> so it's true, man. You got you to gotta go live in these places, not just go hang out with a bunch of other Americans yeah. on an you know, air-conditioned bus and then go home. <laughs> go see these places. Go, go, go experience it. I, I tell people all the time. And I think, it, I think it would make us a lot more skeptical when we're told that the rest of the world is trying to get us, yeah. I think we wouldn't we wouldn't be as close minded about it as we are now. Yeah, mm -hmm. but I, I think you hit on it though. Exactly, is that like the rest of the world thinks about us a lot less than we think they do? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I wanted to you you mentioned um you mentioned your 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 family you're you're married to an Indian American so your kids are mixed and um quick quick explanation from where I'm coming from uh, I I said that I lived in China I got married when I was over there so my wife is an immigrant um so my kids are mixed race mixed heritage whatever um and they have a lot of friends who are also mixed I mean just yesterday literally we were at the playground and they were playing with their friends and there was four families and they were all mixed 
uh, just different varieties. So I mean, it's a very this is this is normal for them, and I think that they do think about race a lot less than than we do you know, in our generation, the older people. <laughs> um, but just between my own my own interactions with my in-laws and talking to these other parents, um, I'm acutely aware of the issues that that can cause. You know, especially among immigrant parents and grandparents, and they out they have these ideas about what kids should be speaking, what language they should be speaking, how they should be learning, what they should know about where they come from. Um, I'm just curious, and I hope this isn't prying too much, but I'm curious how your parents and how your in-laws reacted and how opinionated they've been about how you're raising your kids. Well, um, I, I would say that my wife and I are pretty westernized. We're pretty, we, she's been in America since she was six months old. I came to America when I was six years old. So already there was pushback culturally between, let's say, me and my parents. For example, my mom, when I was younger, when I was maybe I was in college or maybe even high school, when we would talk about who are you going to marry in the future, my mom would always say, "You need to marry an Iranian." Yeah. And and I would tell her, I said, first of all, I said I don't want to get married, and I said, secondly, if I do get married, I don't know what I'm going to marry. And she would say, "No, you need to marry an Iranian." And the reasons were she was trying to say that culturally speaking, it's easier to have someone from the same culture and she would use like silly examples but she'd say you know maybe if I were at a party and we want to speak Persian and I want to tell a joke in Persian if she doesn't speak Persian she's not going to get the jokes <laughs> and I'm like alright mom I'll, get, I'll marry an Iranian just for that <laughs> and and um, but but then once I um, once I uh, met my wife and then my, my mom met her I, th- I think my mom was actually because I had actually dated an Iranian girl for a little while, and my mom didn't, like, really get a... Didn't... It, she, it wasn't, like, her favorite person. Like, yeah. so it, it ended up being, like, oh, it's not... It doesn't matter where they're from. Because <laughs> then my, I, might th- I met this Indian girl, and my mom really liked this girl. And so that was, I think, an eye-opener for her. And then my wife's parents are Indians from the South, so they're Christian, and before they knew that I was dating her, I think she'd asked her dad, like, hey, is, there, is, is it important for you for me to marry an Indian? And he said, I, no, I just hope that you marry a Christian. That was important to him. Yeah. But again, I'm not, I'm not even religious. I come from a Muslim background in that Iran's a Muslim country, but we weren't really religious. We're very secular in my family. But all that said, I think that once again, once I met her parents, they were cool with me. So as long as, I mean, look, everyone's got their own opinions so i think if i had come in strong and said our kids must be raised right. muslim in a mosque and this and that it might have thrown her parents a little bit to go whoa whoa i thought we're christian <laughs> and that might have caused a little more conflict but even then they might have said oh well at least you guys are raising them religious you know they maybe they would have preferred that yeah um so no we didn't get that much pushback the other thing we got a little bit of pushback on was we decided to get married in Mexico, so we wanted to do a destination wedding, and my mom and my aunt were trying to convince us not to because they said, oh, people got to travel, and we have friends here that want to come to the wedding, and, and that was a little bit of a cultural thing because I think that they were Iranians, and I guess Indians as well have big weddings, and Iranians mm-hmm. in L.A. certainly have you know the friend and then the dentist and then the you know, everybody shows up, so... I think my mom was a little upset about that. But again, even even that, when we went down to Mexico for, for the week to do the wedding, when my mom and aunts and some of their friends came, they seemed to have the time of their lives. So yeah. um, we've done pretty well with it all. I mean, I, I'm a little bummed out that my kids don't speak Persian. 
um, that's just the fact of of life. My wife doesn't speak Persian, so she and I speak English. Yeah. The kids, I spoke Pers- Persian to them early on a little bit, but then it's just, it, again, what we were talking about earlier, if I had found a s- immersion school where they could speak it all day, yeah. it might have been something. But the fact that mm-hmm. they hear a word here and there, yeah. it seems to kind of be going, and that, that kind of bums me out. I, I really wanted them to either know Persian or at least some other language. I, I really think languages are important. Yeah, absolutely. Is... is now just correct me if I'm if, if this is not a thing but I know at least in Chinese culture like Chinese school is a very big thing here in the states you know first generation parents will oftentimes send their kids and it's like I don't four four hours on a Saturday they just go and they learn Chinese they learn how to write they learn how to read is that I mean is there a is there an equivalent to that for, for Iranians or for Persians? there are there are some schools and I don't know I haven't found one that was that, that no one no one has spoken the praises of one to me to go yeah. oh the kids love it they go there they play yeah. all day they learn Persian um, <laughs> and, and our kids are already busy with soccer and piano and yeah. dance and tennis so oh. to put them in a school for four hours on a Saturday <laughs> I remember I mean they my, my parents put me in Persian class to, to learn reading and writing and I remember I hated it because it was like an hour with some lady in a room and it was just yep. death you know but but for example, there's a great school called Golestan, which is in Berkeley, and it's a Persian immersion school, and it's a school that kids go to from preschool until I think first grade or something now, and just throughout the day, they're speaking in Persian, they're learning words, they're doing stuff, and it's their regular school day. And so if there were something like that that were, that were uh, organized around fun activities, yeah. I would have uh, an easier time saying, yeah, let's do it for these guys, um, but I haven't found that yet. Yeah, that's what. That's exactly why we haven't done the whole Chinese school thing. Is because it is. It's four hours on a Saturday. You know, they, my kids. They already do. You know, they do Taekwondo, piano. They do all this other stuff, and it's like they they have no interest in sitting in a in a school on their weekend and learning how to write Chinese characters. And it's you know, I I know for my wife, it's sort of a it's a little bit of a heartache for her. She wants them to learn, but I mean, she's they already they learn they know how to speak a little bit you know like they can talk to their grandparents and i i think at this point she's like well if that's the best that we can do that's what we can do because <laughs> we're not going to make it such that it's something that they dread doing you know you don't want them to grow up and be like oh that you know persian school or chinese school i hate yeah it. I was absolutely you know? absolutely i totally agree with that i mean i i uh i think that uh you, you would think there'd be more People of you know immigrant backgrounds in all, in all different um, nationalities finding uh, coming up with fun ways yeah. to think. teach kids. Yeah, you would think that that was something, but but I haven't found it. When you perform stand up in different countries, do you get different reactions based on where you are? Is there like a difference in the crowds? A little bit, not a lot. I mean, I I tend to have a fan base that knows my work, so they kind of know what to expect. Mm-hmm. But there have been times where someone will organize and promote. And for example, I did a show in Saudi Arabia. Now, when I first did Saudi Arabia, the promoter was um, would would do these shows in a almost in a more private setting. It had to be underground mm-hmm. because comedy shows weren't accepted in the culture. So oh, wow. he would do them in, um, in sometimes in the Venezuelan embassy or in or in a or in a um, uh, um, compound where there was expats living, and then they would mix the audiences. It'd be guys, girls, Saudis, Westerners all together watching the show. Mm-hmm. 
um, and it felt a lot more like a show anywhere. But then the last time I did a show in Saudi Arabia, there was a prince who had started to promote shows to the public. And I think in doing so, he had people from different back. He had, he had uh, um, different ages coming, but they were all Saudis, mostly Saudis. And the way it had to be done since it was in public was uh, one side of the room, the left side of the room was all guys and the right side of the room was all families. So it was husbands, wives, and kids. Right. And it was very interesting because you would do a joke that was a little racy, and the family side would just look at you in horror. But the, <laughs> but the young side, the guy's side, would be laughing. And then you would do a joke about being a parent, and then the side on the right, the, the side with the family would laugh. And then the, the other guys looked kind of bored. So, um, yeah, I mean, for the most part, most of the jokes work. You just got to look at who's out in the audience. If there's kids, you tone down the racier stuff. Um, mm -hmm. the, other, the other thing that's sometimes been a little bit of a divider when it comes to jokes is age, meaning um, I've done jokes where I make a reference to, let's say, Marlon Brando from The Godfather, mm. and there's been 22-year-olds in the audience just staring at me, not sure who I'm talking about. So when I perform in front of a crowd that has, for example, I do kid material. I say, who's got kids? And then sometimes I end up on a college campus and I go, who's got kids? And I go, wait a minute, you are kids. <laughs> um, so that becomes a, 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 a factor sometimes. But <laughs> the cultural is less, I would say, when it, when it right. comes to the material I've done. Yeah. You, I mean, you're pretty bold with your stand-up. You, you talk about a lot of topics that I think some some comedians might not touch on. But is there anything that you just don't joke about? I am someone who I don't like to joke about. Like I, I usually don't make fun of the underdog in any situation. I, I don't like when people joke about anyone who's um, uh, a handicap or mentally retarded or something. I, I you know, um, somebody like that. I. I uh, I just I feel like wow these people didn't choose this right. they you know you you shouldn't make fun of them so I stay away from those topics but uh, other than that I mean I talk about whatever comes to mind sometimes I probably don't have that many jokes about religion let's say on the like on the on the nose mm -hmm. I, I I I talk about I I make jokes that refer to religion but I don't sit there and try to um, dissect and criticize religion. Uh, I would say one of the main reasons is because I just don't feel like I'm an expert in these and and, and all the religions. And and I also and I also know that I try to respect people's religions. I'm not that religious myself, so I just say you know to each his own. As long as they're not trying to impose their religion on me, then there's nothing for me to to make fun of. But if right. somebody were to try and impose a religion on me, then I, I wouldn't, I would have no problem going on stage and making fun of them trying to, you know, convert right. me. Right. Um, so you started Access of Evil, the comedy tour in response to the political situation at the time and the cultural misunderstandings that you saw under Bush. Um, now we're 12 years later, in many respects, those same issues have just gotten worse under Trump. Why do you think we need comedy. Like, why is it so vital? Well, Access of Evil actually originally started with uh, Missy Shore, who's the owner of the comedy store and Polly Shore's mother in the year 2000. Um, she's a Jewish American and, and she had been watching the news and there was an uprising uh, with the Palestinians 
uh, and the Israelis. And she's Jewish, but she said, I think like there's going to, she said, I feel like there's going to be a need for a positive voice for Middle Easterners and Arabs in the West. So it was 2000. And she said, what comedians do I have at the club who are of Middle Eastern descent? I was there. I was in Iran. I'm an Iranian American. Uh, she found Ahmed Ahmed, who's Egyptian American. Um, then also we found Aaron Cater, who was half Palestinian. And then she built a show and called it the Arabian Nights. Mm -hmm. And that was her trying to show people from that part of the world being funny and making people laugh. So that eventually then turned into the Axis of Evil, where Ahmed, Aaron, and I went off and changed the name and made it Axis of Evil. But I think that comedy is important. Comedy is a... Um, it's a way for us to deal with all the heavy, serious issues that are going on. I mean, you watch Stephen Colbert every night, and I get my news from him now because he tells me what Trump did, mm -hmm. and then he makes fun of it. And it makes it more palatable for me to go, okay, it's not the end of the world. We're going to get through this. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that comedy is very important. It's been like that forever. I mean, uh, you know, if you go back to uh, Carlin or... Uh, Lenny Bruce or Richard Pryor, those guys all also spoke about social and political issues. Um, and you can bring serious subjects to the forefront and deliver that news in a funny way. Yeah. I think it's very important. And I think that when you have things like Trump, I think that it in inspires art. I think a lot of artists right now are trying to um, push back. Um, and I think that... Uh, that that's what an artist does. I just watched a, a little piece on um, Ai, Ai Weiwei, China. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and he was on 60 Minutes just uh, yesterday. And he was saying how, uh, he said, you know, if art doesn't say anything, then it's not art, basically. He was saying, you know, you got to say something. Right. Uh, meaning something political. So, yeah, I think that comedy can really, really deal with these serious subjects, and it should. Yeah. Do you, do you find that it's therapeutic? you absolutely i think comedy is very therapeutic for me and maybe for an audience as well as a performer is therapeutic but i think as an audience member too because you laugh together yeah and you go oh we're all going through the same thing we're all thinking the same thing and for me as a performer something could happen at the house where let's say i get in an argument with my wife and i take that to the stage and i start talking about it it helps me get through that argument it helps me get through that down whatever that whatever that 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 down thing is mm -hmm. that thing that brought me down so yeah it's definitely it's definitely therapy it, it is i think yeah. so um we had kevin mcdonald from kids in the hall on the show and uh he made a comment at the time that uh he compared um canada and the united states to comedians and he said that if canada were a comedian it'd be woody allen because he's a short balding man with thick glasses who stutters and is not comfortable talking to women um <laughs> And so naturally we asked him, you know, he, he had made the comment about Canada, so naturally we asked him, if America were a comedian, who would it be? Um, I think that's a perfect question to ask you. So if, if America is a comedian, who would that who would it be? <laughs> well, I mean, I think personally that there's kind of two Americas, right? There's kind of like the Kid Rock America. Right. <laughs> and then there's the Stephen Colbert America. Right. <laughs> so it would be it would be a, a a runoff between Kid Rock and Stephen Colbert, um, and uh, I would I would I would be very optimistic about Stephen Colbert winning, and I'd be very excited. And me and my liberal friends would throw a party in anticipation <laughs> of Stephen Colbert winning, 
and Kid Rock would win, and we would all be depressed for a week. So, but then they would find out that the Russians helped Kid Rock win, and so uh, then it would be an ongoing investigation for a while. Yeah, it was and just, then he'd unending. Yeah, exactly. Um, I like I like that answer better. Uh, Kevin McDonald said that it would be Andrew Dice Clay. He said that he he figured. Oh, that's he, funny. He, he was very apologetic at the time. He's like, "Sorry, don't kill me. You're never gonna want me back." But he said, hey, if, "If America were a comedian, it would be somebody loud and brash and obnoxious." So that's funny. <laughs> um, who's when you're you are on? Wait, wait, don't tell me. Um, I gotta ask, who's your fellow favorite fellow panelist? Well, I love them all. They're fantastic. But I got to admit, when Paula Poundstone starts yes. going off on a tangent, it's very entertaining. Cause I'm, I just, I, go, I don't know where she's going with this, but she's cracking me up. So I, I she's have, very funny. I have to admit, I, growing up, you know, when Comedy Central actually showed comedy, like when they did stand up a lot um, in their programming, I, I'd see her on a lot. And I, I was never that big of a fan of her comedy. But then when I rediscovered her on Wait Wait, like she is just hilarious. Like she's so very funny. funny, so funny. Very I really funny. have to go back and revisit a lot of her stand-up because uh, I just I just adore her on that show. Yeah, she's amazing. Um, do you have any good uh, bits that never made it to air? You mean on uh, Wait, Wait Wait? Yeah. Well, I always advise people to go see the live taping because we tape for almost two hours and then they got to edit that down to what, 52 mm -hmm. minutes or right. so, you know, when you include commercials. So there's been many times where I go, oh, that's hilarious. And then I listen the day of, I go, what happened to the joke? <laughs> so, yeah, that, that happens a lot. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I don't remember a specific yeah. one. Um, but I know that I stopped, I, I, I stopped holding on to hope because there was. You know, originally I was like, "Oh wow, I, I'm gonna have a—that's gonna be a half an hour just of, about me." And then, <laughs> and then you go, "No, there's three other panelists. There's all the stuff that they've written with Peter Sagal and the producers." So yeah, I, I advise people if it comes to your town, it travels a lot. Yeah, uh, go see it. I think it's—it's uh, it's a very—that's—that's that's another fun way to. We were talking about comedy and politics. That's a great way to get your news because it's Absolutely. it's uh, comedians making fun of it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, wait, wait is, you know, it's right up there with, you know, like the daily show and everything where it's like, it is, it's, it's presenting news and it's making you laugh, but you're actually getting legitimate news while, while you're laughing your ass off. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, what's the deal with the minivan men podcast? Is that coming back? Oh yeah. That was a bummer. I, uh, so it started with me, Al Madrigal and Chris Spencer. We're all comedians. We had an idea for minivan men, dads just talking about being dads, but comedian dads. And, and it went on for a while, but then everyone got busy. So Al Madrigal at that time had booked, um, uh, the, the daily show. So he was going back and forth between New York. Uh, Chris Spencer had just started to, uh, do, um, the, the real husbands of Hollywood with Kevin Hart. So that had him busy and I was constantly touring. So there was many times where we were trying to Skype in or call in or what have you. And eventually we just gave up on it. Oh. And so it's been a few years since we did it. And we've talked about it a couple of times. I actually thought of maybe starting my own podcast. I've kind of been um, procrastinating with it because I have so many other things happening. But I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we'll come back with something like that. Or maybe I'll come up with my own I I, I, I like I like doing it because it it really is a as a comedian it actually is a great way to help develop material because you sit around 
with other people and talk. As you guys know, you get to talk for mm -hmm. whatever it is, a half an hour, hour, however long it is. And in that half an hour, hour, I think ideas come up and riffs come up and you go, oh, I should take that to the stage. So I think it would help me if I could just get the discipline and, and start doing it on a weekly basis. Absolutely. Yeah, I know it's a lot of comedians have been doing that. They've been starting their own shows and, and it, whether they're just recordings of stand-ups or they're just, you know, sit, sit down and talk into a microphone. Um, it, it's great for the audience because you get to see a different side of comedians. But like you were saying, yeah. I have to imagine creatively it's a great outlet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Maz, thank you so much. This has just been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate this. Okay, that was a fantastic interview. Something I've always... We talked about it before the, before the interview, but we said that the interview was more serious. And that's actually something that I enjoy watching comedians. I don't know. I don't know if you've ever seen them in interviews. I like when they like bring it down and they and they talk from themselves, like to, you know, talk as themselves versus yeah. this crazy hyped up comedian version. And one yeah. example that I can think of is I watched Jerry Seinfeld's comedians and cars getting coffee. And while it's usually like hilarious and you laugh the whole time, there's moments in it where the comedians come down to like earth level and they, and they, you know, they take a serious approach. Like when he did it with Jim Carrey, it was pretty good. Yeah. Like you never expected Jim Carrey to be like a, he's like a painter and he's stoic and you, know, you never think of that. Right. Like no, exactly. It like, is, you know, yeah, but it's, yeah, it's uh, you know, when comedians are, are, are funny and they're, like, on, you know, like I was joking mm -hmm. before, I was like, dance for us, you know, say say a joke, yeah. funny man. That's, like, they're in entertaining mode, you know, like, that's what, that that's their rehearsed entertainment mode, and that's what, that's them as performer, you know, but, like, when they bring it down and they're talking seriously about issues that they really believe in or talk, you know, and they, they speak from the heart, that's sort of more who they are rather than who they are as an entertainer. Exactly. So I hope you guys enjoyed that interview. And for, just like we said before, we're going to be going into hiatus in a couple of weeks, so we will let you know more about that. So keep following us on Facebook and Twitter at the GBB Podcast, and you can find that information out there, as well as listen to our shows next week. Hey. Just download the show, and you'll you'll figure it out. All right, guys, I am Justin at 140 Justin C. I am Jamie at The Roarbots. And we will see you next time right here on The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Take care. This podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdad.